evening, it is our privilege for the first lesson. I had intended for this to be printed in the bulletin, but there was some confusion and it was not um, uh, carried out at that time when the, the bulletin went to press. Donald P. Mara is the vice president of the Mara Lumber Company in Nassau in the Bahamas. Two years ago, he gave his testimony in this church on how he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. One of the things that has captivated and fascinated the interest of many Americans in the last uh, few years is the really cult of physical fitness. And uh, this week, all of us have been grateful for what we have seen of the Olympic champions from the United States uh, who have been touring the country, and we are certainly thankful for that. It ties in well today to have the testimony of a Christian runner uh, because uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Jim Fix died running. A great uh, man who had introduced to many Americans uh, the benefits of running. And uh, we have today someone who has run in the New York Marathon, which is pictured here. And uh, when I spoke with him yesterday morning, uh, he, uh, Friday morning, he had just finished jogging seven miles in and thought nothing of that. And uh, I wanted him to speak to us today about the Christian faith and running. Thank you, Calvin. This uh, actually is our 13th summer that my wife and I have vacationed here in Black Mountain. And it was here that I first started to run some six or seven years ago. And as this year, as we were driving up I think it was somewhere in South Carolina. We had tuned into WFGW, FM station here. And while we were listening to Dr. Dobson on Focus on the Family, neither of us could speak because of the tears that were coming down of our faces as the Spirit of God ministered to our hearts. And it was last Friday that we had the privilege of going to Ben Lippin. And we listened to Chuck Colson as he challenged us to be holy because God is holy. And last Sunday, we found ourselves in the First Baptist Church in Asheville. And Deacon Wayne Jewsbury, he reminded us that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And it is only in Jesus Christ that we have our true and ultimate fulfillment. And as an expert on running, I'm really not. In fact, I'm a backslidden runner. And I'm hoping to survive the 15-kilometer race which is being held this Saturday in, in Hendersonville. My really only claim to fame is that both Alberto Salazar and myself, we ran our first marathon together in New York City in October 1980. He came in first, and I was right behind him at 5,166, <laughs> I would like to say there was another 6,000 people behind me. According to one definition in the American Heritage Dictionary, religion is any objective attended to or pursued with zeal or with conscientious devotion, i.e., a collector might make a religion of his hobby. Certainly many of us runners make a religion out of our quest for physical fitness and health. In fact, through physical fitness, we find a peace, a contentment, a joy, a self-worth, and a fulfillment that is unknown to the unhealthy. And like the philosophers that we're going to read about on Mars Hill, we spend our time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas on running. And if we really think about it, 
Our God is whatever we spend most of our time talking and thinking about. And so then running is a valid religion. And these past weeks, as we have all watched the Olympics, we have seen to what glorious disciplines and accomplishments the human body can attain. And as a runner, I identified with Joan Benoit with her unbelievable victory in the women's marathon. My heart went out to Mary Decker as she stumbled and fell, and the dreams of her lifetime were shattered. With Alberto Salazar, my heart was as worn with him as he ran like a champion Olympian. Yet it was not God's will that he'd have that mystical inner burst of energy and determination to push to the front. And I rejoice with Gomez, a 37-year-old veteran coming from the pack to win the men's marathon, an unexpected and powerful victory. Yes, these men and women of sports know discipleship that we can only talk about. Through the life and the writings of Dr. George Sheenan and the late Jim Fix and many others, millions of Americans have found life abundant through the health and exercise. It is estimated that possibly 50 million Americans, not to mention those who are not American, in the past 20 years have found new life in athletics. Christian people, how many converts to Jesus Christ have you been responsible for? Many of us were horrified to learn of Jim Fick's running death at the age of 52. So his arteries were clogged and his heart failed. Did he not lay down his life for his friends? Did he not give hope to the weak and the dying? And would he possibly not have died years ago had he not run? Friends, we have much to learn from the world of sports. These athletes are dedicated and sold-out missionaries, exhorting and preaching the new life in health and exercise. What is your mission? What is my mission? Paul tells us that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do to get a crown that will last forever. Hallelujah. Are we running for Jesus Christ? Do we run with the patience? Do we run with patience the race that is set before us? Do we press on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Do we know that the race is not to the swift, that no man knows when his hour will be? Do we run with feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? Have we the belt of truth buckled around our waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place? Do we take up the shield of faith which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one? Do we take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God? Do we pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests? Do we know what it is to wait upon the Lord to renew our strengths and to mount up on wings as eagles? and to run and not be weary, and to walk and not faint? Are we holy because he is holy? Do we believe that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked face, their wicked ways and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land? Do we know what it is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? May God teach us to run for our lives. And in Jesus' name, I pray that we can say with Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, and I have kept the faith.
Thank you. Before I read our second lesson, I want to say that I really felt inferior up here to these athletes because I had Donald Mara, who has run in a marathon, and uh, Larry Wilson, you may not know, is a graduate of Springfield College, uh, which is a specialist in physical education and distinguished himself there as a gymnast. In fact, he saved me from breaking my neck once on a trampoline down in the uh, <laughs> gymnasium. Uh, I was bouncing around and bounced off of the trampoline and nearly hit that gym floor and he caught me. Thanks a lot, Larry. <laughs> Our lesson today uh, really picks up at verse 16 of chapter 17. Those of you who were here last Sunday will know that we have been looking at highlights in the book of Acts with a special emphasis upon conversion. Uh, last week we saw something of the vision that God gave to Paul to go into Macedonia. Uh, how the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus are spoken of as having forbidden him to go to uh, different places. And then when this Macedonian vision came, they obeyed immediately. And then Dr. Luke, a Greek physician, uh, joins them and goes uh, with them. Uh, when they come into the city of Philippi, uh, the first convert on European soil is a woman whose name is Lydia, a person of some intellectual uh, prominence and some business prominence. And she promptly invites them to use her home, which must have been large, for there were uh, many servants, uh, to hold prayer meetings and uh, Bible studies, and which became a preaching point. Uh, also, there is converted in that town because the gospel has an effect on changing what's going on uh, in the abuse of people. And there is a slave uh, girl who does not even own her own body, but it is owned by others, and she is converted to faith in Jesus. Uh, she is delivered from an evil spirit, and we presume she also became a Christian uh, at this time. Uh, we see Lydia... Uh, the seller of purple, the merchant woman, the intellectual. We see the slave girl. And then Paul's uh, activity resulting from her conversion leads to a riot. Uh, Paul and Silas are put in prison and uh, are treated brutally. Then their jailer is converted. Will Rogers used to say the man ought to live such a good life that even the undertaker would be sorry when he died. And uh, when your jailer gets converted, you may be sure that uh, you've had quite an effect on the people there. Well, this man had brutally beaten, uh, had Paul and Silas beaten, and he is converted. And after his conversion, uh, he is baptized, and then he demonstrates uh, uh, some practical Christian service by washing the wounds of those uh, men and setting before them food. And his household is filled with joy. I couldn't help but think of Barbara and that whole family being transformed from what it was just a few years ago by the power of Jesus Christ, how their style of life uh, is changed because Jesus came into their heart and into their home and into their children. Uh, well, we see these results, and then we know that Paul leaves that city. He goes to Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. 
uh, we read that the Bereans were more noble because they searched the scriptures to see whether the things which Paul was teaching were true or not. And I often want to apply this to people here. When you hear something put forward from the pulpit, do you search the scriptures to see whether it is in, uh, it's supportable from the Bible or not? The Reformed tradition is that the minister is the man behind the word. You are to obey the minister only in so far as he speaks the word of God. He has no other authority. Uh, but he must preach God's word, and you should check up on him to see whether it is in keeping with Scripture. And so then after preaching in Berea, Paul goes uh, to Athens. And here, something unusual occurs. He's left alone for a while in the city of Athens. Normally there is someone with him, but for some days he is apparently by himself. And we'll pick up uh, this at verse um, uh, 16. Uh, this is chapter 17 of the book of Acts, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting uh, at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They used the plural deities there because they thought Jesus was one God and the resurrection was another God. Uh, this man has been in... Uh, and they took him and brought him. That is, they took Paul when they heard him speaking about Jesus in the marketplace and about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They took him to the Areopagus, and they said, May we know what this new teaching which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke uh, puts in uh, his coloring of this. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus, that's this learned society, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in a temple made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, 
as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Now let's worship God with our gifts. Jesus, why? 
our thanks to Natalie and Rob and Jeff and also to Miss Sullins for this wonderful music. This has been a lot of help. Let's stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do bless you for this gift of music and for the testimonies we've already heard, for the scriptures that have been read, and for the songs we've had the privilege to sing. And now we praise thee that we have an opportunity to participate in the spread of the gospel through the giving of our gifts to thee. We pray that you will help us to know how to give wisely and carefully so that we give to your glory. And that you will take and supervise our gifts and bring honor to the name of Jesus with them. And that you will bless our thoughts now as we begin to think of ways by which we may be more effective witnesses for Christ and our minds and hearts may be more open to his message. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to try to rush through something that I think illustrates a point. Not long ago, I was listening to a tape by Charles Swindoll, who is just about the best communicator of Bible teaching that I know today. I love Charles Swindoll. And uh, we must be about the same age because we've had some of the same experiences. Uh, he was talking not long ago about uh, one of his children coming to him and asking him what it was like in the olden days before television. And I have had that experience too. And some of us will remember that in those olden days before television, there was the radio. And I worked for a great radio station, all 250 watts of it. 
which was located in Paris, Texas. I always wanted to turn the microphone on and say, hello, world, uh, knowing that it would reach across the street. And uh, Well, back in those days, we rode the ABC network, and so I became very uh, conscious of uh, the programs that were being broadcast. Do you remember Mr. District Attorney? Some of you do, I can tell by the expression on your face. You can even say the first lines of it, champion of the people, defender of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the guardian of our liberties. I remember that very well. You remember the Jack Benny program and Amos Nandy, and you will remember Fibber McGee and Molly and The Shadow and all of the other great things that used to be on uh, the radio. Well, Charles Swindoll said that he remembered all of those too, but he was a little bit intimidated by his mother because her favorite program and his favorite program were not the same. Her favorite program was the Quiz Kids. <laughs> and some of us who are older and remember the Quiz Kids remember what they looked like because when we went to the movies in those olden days, they would sometimes have filmed versions of radio programs that were shown at the movies. Uh, it's funny that the movies are now doing uh, programs that occurred on television. That's why you get the Star Wars syndrome coming back. Uh, well, these quiz kids were sort of weird young children that wore thick uh, uh, glasses and blinked a lot. And uh, uh, the people got them from all over the country and put them on a panel, and they asked them incredible questions. And uh, Swindoll gives, uh, gives an example of when they were asked about the category of music, and the host would say, when did Paderewski write the minuet and who played it to a standing ovation in 1934 in Carnegie Hall? And almost before the word hall would get out of the mouth of the host, there'd be a buzz, and this little kid about four years old would stand up and he'd give the answer. And uh, he would say she was wearing a green dress, three-quarters length long, a, a gold chain about her neck. It was 64 degrees outside. Also, you may be interested to know that Paderewski was a critic of Chopin and became the prime minister for a while, as a matter of fact, for 10 months in Poland. And, and well, and then uh, Swindoll said that his mother uh, would uh, turn around and look at him while he was minding his own nose and picking his own business and say, uh, 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 see there, see what you could do if you really studied, and she ruined his self-image of life. Well, uh, an organization called Probe Ministries has a special group of people that uh, seek to witness to those who are probing, who are interested in the intellectuals. And not long ago, they met one of these quiz kids, and they began to talk uh, to him. And this man, with all of his wisdom, had become a, a great professor. But he found that in all of his intellectualism, there was an emptiness in his heart because he did not know God. And this man became a Christian. And this was what incited Swindoll to recall that and apply it to Paul's appearance at Mars Hill. Because uh, Athens was the great seat of learning. A Athens was the place that was known to the intellectuals, known because of what Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, or what Zeno and Epicurus and others would have taught there. It was a brilliant center of learning. 
Uh, it was a, a university place. It was a prep school uh, environment where you came to learn a second language. But it was also a place that was given over to monstrous idolatry. And Paul, who was a man of considerable learning himself, because he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, he even came from the same city at Tarsus that Zeno had come from. This Paul came into this enormously impressive city, and those of you who have been there, and I have, and so has Donnie who was up here this morning, you have seen the ruins are even impressive. We can't make anything to even compare to the ruins that are there uh, today. The works of sculpture. There were, at the time Paul visited this city, there were 30,000 gods and goddesses in Athens. Now, what would this do to the soul of a Jew who grew up on the Ten Commandments where God said, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nor the likeness of anything, and bow down to it. Here is this Jew who has been converted to Jesus as the Messiah, and he comes into this city. He is not impressed with all of the grandeur of the architecture and the beauty of these things to the place that he forgets about God. Because we read in the key words that are here, and I hope you will keep the bulletin because in that is a, a summary of what I want to say with it. The, uh, if, you, if you'll see what happens, what prompts him to preach is in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Uh, J.B. Phillips translates that his soul was exasperated beyond endurance at the sight of a city so completely idolatrous. There was a statue there that could be seen, the glint on the spear could be seen 40 miles out at sea. And with all of this grandeur, Paul, Paul's heart is stirred, it's provoked. He had been to the synagogue and had taught them there about Jesus. He had been to the marketplace and talked to the common people that were there. And now he goes to talk to the intellectuals. And he speaks to them. And it's a powerful sermon. And if you go there to Mars Hill today, you'll see uh, these verses which take only about two and a half to three minutes to read the part that he speaks at Mars Hill uh, that's recorded in Acts. It must have been a much longer sermon than that. He would have told about the life of Jesus and about his going to the cross. And then, of course, he does speak of the resurrection from the dead that's here and the call to repentance. Well, Paul was provoked because he saw, he saw this city given over to idolatry. What provokes you when you watch television and you see no, nothing given to God as far as reverence is concerned and much of the programming that goes on, of course there are religious programs that come and go, but I mean 
in the, in the literature of our day and in the art of our day, how much reference is there really made in a meaningful way to God? When Paul was writing this, what caused eventually the fall of the Roman Empire, according to uh, the great student of that period, whose name was uh, Edward Gibbon, was that the uh, people considered all religions equally true, the common people. The philosophers considered them all equally false, and the politicians considered them all equally useful. Doesn't that ring a bell today? It's a lot like that now. Well here, Paul comes and he sees all of these idols and his spirit is exasperated or provoked. Now when I studied the book of Acts under the great Cambridge scholar John Stott, who took two gold medals, two firsts, at Cambridge. John Stott said that as a young man he had grown up in the home of an atheist. His father was a neurosurgeon. He did not believe in God at all. When Stott, as a student, came to faith in Jesus Christ, he, like most of our students here who come to faith in Jesus Christ, began to read missionary biographies and to study uh, about how you can relate your faith to other people. That's what these folk are doing with their faith, and that's what we must do if we're showing that we really belong to the Lord. He gave an illustration when I was at Regent College of how his heart was first challenged to really be concerned for the honor and the glory of Christ, he was reading a biography of a man by the name of Henry Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, who also was a Cambridge scholar who went as a missionary. He was going to go to India, but he wound up in Iran and uh, uh, was a great missionary there who translated uh, into the language of the people the Bible. He was a brilliant scholar and he loved Jesus Christ. And one day there came into his presence a prince of Iran who told him of a Muslim prince who had just informed him that he had killed so many Russian Christians that were on the borders of Iran that Christ from the fourth heaven had taken hold of Mohammed's skirt to entreat him to desist. I don't know if you have the picture in your mind, but somewhere up in heaven, there is Jesus kneeling before Mohammed, begging Mohammed to stop. And Henry Martin, the missionary, wrote, I was cut to the soul with this blasphemy. When asked what it was that was so offensive to him, Henry Martin replied, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were always thus dishonored. And his interviewer was astonished and again asked, but why? To which Henry Martin replied, if anyone plucked out your eyes, there is no saying why you feel pain. It's there. And it is because I am one with Christ 
that I am thus dreadfully wounded. Now John Stott says, when I read that book many years ago, I can still remember almost the shock that I had when I read the passage. For I had never experienced anything like that. I think I have begun to understand at least what Henry Martin meant. This zeal for the honor and the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And Stott says this is the major missionary motivation. Now let me tell you what that means. What do you think when you hear someone around you take the name of Jesus Christ in vain? Does it stir your heart when you hear it on television when God's name is blasphemed? When his word is cavalierly dismissed by so-called leaders in the church, does it stir you? Do you care? If you don't care, something is wrong with you spiritually. You're dead inside spiritually. Henry Martin was concerned for the honor of Christ and every Christian should be. I was up in Connecticut the other day and a farmer had a man working on a pump who took the name of Jesus Christ. And my farmer friend turned to him and said to him, Do you know the Lord's Prayer? And the man said, Yes. And he said, Say it for me. And he said, Huh? And he said, Say the Lord's Prayer for me. And he said, Are you kidding? He said, No, I want you to say the Lord's Prayer. Just say it. Our Father who art in heaven. He said, What does it say? Hallowed be thy name. He said, Do you know what you've done? You have not hallowed his name, you have dishonored his name. And he spoke to him about it, and he witnessed to him, and I thought, how many Christians do I know, how many ministers do I know, who would be brave enough to bear a testimony for Christ? Well, Paul's heart was deeply moved when he saw this city given over to idolatry. Well, how sincere do you think the Athenians' interest in the gospel I think it was like the sower in the soils, like the shallow soil. There are always people who are condescending. They want to hear what this babbler has to say. Literally, it means seed picker. This memorizer who's learned a few things will go hear him. But there were two groups who listened. That's why I wanted Donnie to give his testimony. The seekers after pleasure, there are people who think if you can only prolong this life a little longer and a little healthier so you can have better sex and so you can get on a little further with life, that that's the chief end of life. That's Epicureanism. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But what Paul winds up saying here is, uh-uh. You meet God at the judgment. The Epicureans thought that life, everything happens by chance. There's a beer ad that says you only go around once, but you come to a dead stop one day. And five minutes after you're dead is a poor time to find out the truth. You only live life once, so live it to the hill. 
Well, you live it to the hilt only when you know life in Jesus Christ. The Epicureans thought it was by chance that death ended everything, that there was no life after death, that the gods are remote, that there is no God. If there is a God, he doesn't care. The chief end of life is to have a blast. That's what they thought. The Stoics that we read about here were seekers of escape. You know why we got so many sunglasses? <laughs> the psychiatrists have had a field day studying this. People want masks. I saw someone who went in a restaurant the other day and they said, take your shades off. Nobody knows who you are anyway. Uh, it, it, <laughs> uh, it's a mask uh, often. There's a whole psychology that deals with it. There are seekers of escape. There are people who get on an airplane and fly to Athens or fly to some far off place in the world because they want to escape. There are seekers after novelty, anything new, even religion. They'll dabble with it for a while. And this was what Luke spoke about. That was his verdict on them when he said that these people spent their time doing nothing else except getting some new idea, passing it on, going from this conference to that conference or trying this trick and that trick. Now think, how do you react to people's concern for things as we see it advertised? You ever notice on television how often they say something is new and because it's new it's supposed to be good? I don't know what kind of fountain pen William Shakespeare wrote with. He didn't even have a fountain pen. He had a quill. But we don't write anything that good now. Thomas Jefferson didn't have a, a word processor. Uh, <laughs> he didn't have a dictaphone. Because it's new, it's not necessarily good. Have you ever noticed how often in an ad they're showing something to the neighbor? They're demonstrating this is crass materialism. This is the God that sweeps our society now. Seekers after novelty. Well, how do we approach? They wanted to know more because they had seen a quality in the life of Paul that fascinated them, and they were touched by it. And some of them went away and sneered when he said there would be a resurrection from the dead and a judgment. But thank God we're encouraged by what we read. We're encouraged that when some went away, but some men joined him and believed, among whom was also Dionysius. Now that's important. 